0: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today, we're going to play a really personal and wide-ranging interview I did with Melissa Etheridge. She talks about her entire career from the very beginning, including the writing of some of her best-known songs, the time she spent with Bruce Springsteen, being in the closet early on and having almost no one ever ask her about it, and her very intense and life-changing experience with cannabis. We also of course talk about the personal tragedy she recently experienced let's get right to that interview melissa thank you so much for doing this my pleasure when i listen to your music when i listen to your voice when i listen to your songwriting i hear a lot of things but one thing i've always heard is is strength um i think you project that in in a million ways uh, you have a song called love will live on your most recent album and it's about a very different kind of trauma but you know you say I, I did not shatter did not crumble didn't die i've chosen to live i'm no longer down i am so much stronger now i've got so much to give and i think you've you've overcome a lot <laughs> um and uh, you know I, I wanted to uh you know i wanted to start by offering condolences on, the, on a loss I, I can't even imagine yeah
1: thank you so um, much
0: and I, I i don't know how you're Doing all you're doing now in, in the face of that loss, and I don't. And the, the only reason I would ask is maybe you have something to share that might help other people as, as far as being able to move on.
1: Yeah. Well, the um, well, I realized I, I started thinking a long time ago that um, maybe things weren't happening to me. Maybe they were happening for me. You know, maybe this was the path that I needed to walk. You know, starting with you know just. Being gay and trying to make it in this world, with you know, with, with, as a as a female, it you was know, a lesbian rock star, you know, <laughs> that the that first thing, and then cancer, and then you know, losing my son. That's that's probably probably the hardest, uh, deepest wound or cut. But uh, as as a mother of someone who was addicted to opioids, it's a you know, it's it's a struggle. You want to help your child. You want to, you want to make them all better. He, you know, he was a young adult. There were things out of my control, of course. And there came a time that I needed to uh, really sit down with myself and and say, I I can't save him. I can't give up my life and go try to live his life for him. And uh, I had to come up against the possibility that he might die. And I had to be okay. Not okay, but I had to be able to go on living. Of course, it's nothing a parent ever wants. But as a human being, I needed to, uh, I just needed to be at peace with a troubled son who did the best he could, who you know, believed what he believed and then his life ended, you know, way, way too soon. Uh, you know, there'll always be that place in my heart in my soul that, you know, that has a little bit of, oh, what could I have done? And, you know, and i is it my fault he ended this way and all, all that sort of thing. And it's it just gets smaller and smaller because it doesn't serve me anymore. And, and where he is now, he certainly doesn't want me to take that on. So if, you know, if that can Help any parent who might be torturing themselves with that. You know, I, I hope so. It's, it's, you know, life. Life is. I, I believe life is is meant to be lived in, in as much joy as we can. But life is also contrast. Life is also up and down. I, I've lived enough of it now to to know. And and you can't lay down. You can't be shattered. You can't die and give up. You know, that's. And yeah, that's what my son did. You know, it's, it's, it's to be lived. It's, it's to learn. So I, you know, I still struggle with it, but you know, that's, that's what I can say.
0: Yeah. How was the family holding up under this?
1: Um, well, again, when you have a family member who has been struggling with opioid addiction, you know, it was a good year of us knowing he was really in trouble and kind of ups and downs, and it wasn't a surprise again to the family. You know, you hope, okay, this is the time he's going to, this is the day that he's going to say, yeah, I can I can do this. I can get through. And so so we, you know, we all wish the best for him and, and supported him and loved him. And yet we know that this was one of the, what could, might have happened, you know, and, and, and it did. So we, we love each other. You know, I have two 13-year-old twins that are just, they're just so clear, and, and they, they loved him so much and, and still do, and they're happy he's out of pain now. You know. And, and uh, my oldest daughter, who was probably closest to him, um, you know, she struggles, but we, we help each other, and you know, it's just about love. It's just about talking about it. It's just about you know, being in the moment with it. Well,
0: you deserve all the credit in the world for uh, pushing forward and, and projecting this much, again, strength what's it been like to return to to music in the the face of this?
1: That's, that's where all the healing is Uh, before his death. I had been doing a daily little, little concerts from my home. So much fun, you know, four songs. I was, Really getting into the, uh, I, I was going deep in my catalog, and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to do every song I've ever recorded, and I got really close to it. I, you know, hundreds of songs I, I was playing, and then when that happened, I, I stopped and I let go and I, you know, grieved. And and after a, a few weeks, I was I was like, this is this is so hard for me. My release, the thing that makes life make sense, has always been my music. I have always been able to sing and and breathe and and let it out and get the emotions out through music that's it has saved me my whole entire life and I I knew I I I started with well is that appropriate how do I how do I get in front of people now how do I how do I do that when you know they they know this pain they know what I'm going through and and so I, um, what my wife and I did, the you know the week after he died, we started coming out here in our garage. That's that's what this is. Is this is our garage, wow. and and we um, we created something we've dreamed of always, which is our own little studio. So we can. My, my wife is a, a television producer and creator. She created Nurse Jackie and all that stuff, and this was a place where we could make our dream come true of uh, creating television around what I love to do, which is just to sing. So we came out here every day, day after day after day. And just, we didn't know how it was going to work. We didn't know, we didn't know about lighting. We, we had to learn about cameras. We had to learn about streaming. We had to learn everything. And little by little, every day, we plug something in, figure something out and get a piece of equipment. My management helped uh, fund a lot of this and, we put it all together and i was able to do what i called the heal me concert which was just a free concert i said look this is this is what we're doing i i sang i just got it was just so uh so healing for me and then now we have uh, turned it into uh, to um something we call etheridge tv which is a you can go to a website, ethridgetv.com. TV.com. You can buy a subscription and five days a week there's uh, live programming. There's three live shows where I perform for like an hour like yesterday. I do covers on Tuesdays, Thursdays is deep tracks and Saturdays is like big rock concert and and it's just me and I, I'm looping and I'm I get to I get to work my uh, I get to practice some of my music, I get to play my guitars. It's it gives us something to do every day to get through this time and it's just really saved us
0: it's, no they've been great I, I i watched the you did all springsteen day uh ah. and, and I, I got a big kick out of that
1: yesterday was beatles day yeah I got, I got to do uh i got to do i did a epic rendition of of hey jude you know and it's just it's music it saves me i it fills me. It also something I can give to others. It's an energy that I just could never live without. So I'm so grateful for it.
0: One thing I noticed about when you are performing these, uh, these live stream things that other people seem to struggle with more is, and I think it may go back to your comfort of performing in all sorts of settings, performing in bars for years, but you are, are clearly able to get yourself into that place where you're actually are on stage and performing for an audience rather than having that awkward bar of I'm in my garage, you know, I I felt like more than most people you're, you're able to do that.
1: Yeah. And that does come from having to play in a bar five nights a week to the bartender and the bouncer, you know, and that was it. And pretending and just saying, well, I'm going to pretend that there's thousands of people watching me and you do it for your own enjoyment and you do it to the level i'm still not given at all like i do when there's people jumping up and down in front of me yet my wife is here and sometimes my daughter is here i have like two they, they give me an audience when i can and i know in my head that there's you know a thousand people watching i know there is so so it gives me that place i can go and i thank you i appreciate that because i i know people want to be entertained I don't think they just want to watch me sit in my bedroom and play the guitar. I think they want to be inspired, and that's that's my intention when I do these. You
0: played your first bar shows, I believe, in in, in high school,
1: right? Or yeah. Is, is that, yeah. Junior high. I was in. Oh wow! God, the first bar I went to was with my my father. Would come with me wherever I would go. So, it wasn't like I was just hanging out in bars. But I was about twelve years old, and it was a country you know country western band we called it country western back then in in the 60s in the 70s in Kansas and you know that was the first he would come with me and like the first set I'd get up and sing some Tammy Wynette songs and then I'd go home and then by the time I was 13 I was a full member of a band and I played full gigs you know in, in bars and you know VFWs and Elks clubs and just wherever there was live music I would play.
0: The full gritty roar of your voice, how long did that take to sort of arrive?
1: <laughs> well, I think um, I think when I was, I've mean, listened to recordings of me when I was about 12 or 13, and um, I think mostly it came from singing other people's material, and by the time I was, it was, I, I had a choir teacher, I was also in choir, and the teach the she always said, "Well, I would put you in the back because your voice was so strange." So I, I think I I think I always kind of had a a kind of gravelly thing going on, but then the more I sang other people's songs, the more um, technique I had, and the more I realized, "Oh, I can do this with my voice." And it just I just sang all the time, so I I was able to work on it.
0: I think. Before, well before Janis Joplin became a hero, it was actually Linda Ronstadt who was a sort of a female role model. Is, is that, is For me,
1: yeah. 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 It took me a while to understand Janis Joplin. It, it, it took me until I really became a young adult to understand. I, I thought she was just kind of, I thought she was screaming. It, it, it also took me to get into sort of the blues, the black blues women. That's when I, oh, that's when I totally understood what she was doing, when I started listening to, you know, Bessie Smith and, and um, you know, Odetta and, and just all these uh, these great uh, singers, you know, the blues singers. And, and, and that's where rock and roll came from. And when I made that correlation, I went, oh, this is who I need to be listening to.
0: How close did you actually come to playing Janis Joplin in, in a biopic?
1: Uh, pretty close. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah it, it you know it's funny. I Hollywood is a weird place. You know, it's 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 a, they kind of wanted to do Janis Joplin's story, but they kind of wanted to make it up. You know, they didn't really <laughs> want the real story, and and so it, it didn't work. You, you you really have to. Her story still isn't told. There still isn't that great great story of this this woman who completely went against all female norms in the 60s and presented this amazing powerful thing that was frightening and then just just burned out you know and i I still hope that someday it will be made but uh yeah i was taking acting lessons and i was in it we did a, a couple of uh of screen tests and things like that and it was written and then it just went away because that's the way Hollywood is. It just poof, it goes away.
0: That's one of the great lost projects, I think. And, cause you're one of the f- few people alive. <laughs> that's funny. My, it's funny that my voice went out on that moment. Uh, <laughs> it's, one, it's one of the, <laughs> you're one of the few people alive who could have, you know, credibly done the singing yourself, uh, uh, you know, thank you. you it, know, could,
1: she, they could get some young actress, but you know, that's probably what they'll have to do is, is get someone to sing to the masters. Cause because she's just so unique and and individual and you could probably get some great you know get like Tatiana Maslany to to play her you know and and then just use the masters and it's just a story that should be told so
0: you very dramatically kind of went off to Los Angeles in this very like sort of cinematic way when you were, when you were a young woman tell me about that sort of
1: journey well i i grew up in kansas you know where all dreams uh, all you have is your dreams you know all you have is is uh what you want to be you know i had played enough that i knew i could go out into the world and i could go to a restaurant or a bar or a club or something i could make you know 10 i could live i could make you know 25 bucks a night and i could live you know i knew i could do that i knew i could I, i could go down i could busk on the street and make enough money to live So I didn't, I didn't have that fear. So when I came out to Hollywood, I fortunately had an aunt who lived in Silver Lake. And I stayed on her couch for a while until I got up and out. But then when I got here, it was 1982. And all the places I thought I'd go down to the Troubadour, you know, where Jackson Brown was. And, and by the time I got there, 1982, it was all Hairbands and spandex you know and I'm like oh god I don't fit in here and you couldn't make any money in these places because everybody wanted to play them so you had to pay to play play. you had to pay to play and so um fortunately I found work in women's bars yes around so I was able to support myself but I kept thinking who's ever going to come see me and discover me if I'm in a women's bar but there was the wife the, the wife of a Uh, my manager was friends with a soccer team. And it eventually, I mean, it took five years, but eventually, you know, the record business community found me and Chris Blackwell after, I mean, I had been turned down by everybody because they, they used to have to come out to the lesbian bars in 1984, which is not, you know, it's very hip now to go to a lesbian (laughs) bar, but 1984, this is not something you wanted to do. And, they would come out and see, and they, they, I mean, I saw presidents of companies. I was turned down by everybody. And finally, Chris Blackwell walks in, he hears four songs. Chris Blackwell from Island Records, he hears four songs and says, yeah, I don't know why you're not signed yet. Yeah, and he signs me and it's done.
0: Now, did you first make contact with the LGBTQ community in LA, or, or was it in Boston or earlier, where were you first kind of like,
1: well, the late 70s, you know, 79, 80 is when I first like went to my first gay bar. It was actually in Boston in 79, you know, and that was just, that's just a, oh, that's a crazy experience. I'd never, you know, for a girl from Kansas, it was, you know, really, I mean, it was fine. It was just a bunch of lesbians at a bar, but I'd never seen that, that many people who were like, oh, oh, they're like me, and here we are in one place. And then it wasn't until I came out to LA and I moved down to Long Beach and started playing in Long Beach. And there was a strong, strong, we certainly didn't call it LGBTQ back then, we just said the gay community. And it was the lesbian community and the gay community. And, and the lesbian community was really, really strong. They, the women's movement, it sort of came from that. And then the early eighties, when the AIDS crisis came, that's when we really started uh, organizing and, and getting together that the boys and the girls would, would get together and organize and make things happen because we needed to, we were fighting for our lives. And that's when I really became part of the, the LGBT community.
0: Surviving through decades, uh, I've begun to think can be like it. At a certain point, it can start to feel like you're a time traveler, a very slow time traveler, because I mean, if you look at 2020 America and 1970s Kansas, the difference in visibility, acceptance, everything is, is just incalculable, I think.
1: Well, I have to give it up for Kansas. They're actually doing, they're actually on a, a path now to really become much more progressive from the election that they just had. And, and um, they elected, uh, Johnson County in Kansas elected a lesbian Native American woman To represent them, you know, Sharice Davis. It was just amazing, and they're moving in more democratic ways. It's I I, coming from there, I know the Kansas people. I know, you know, they're good. They're God-fearing people. Yet there's a there's a sense of we're not north and we're not south. I grew Mm up. uh, We were. It was very integrated. It was black and white. I had one high school in my my town. And so everybody went there, the better off and the poorer kids and the, we had an army base and those kids would come. So we had kind of this interesting flair of kids from around the world. So there's just a a sense of live and let live there that I think is really going to show up in the next few years in Kansas. I think, (laughs) it's my dog. (laughs) I I think Kansas is going to... I have a, low, a whole lot of hope in Kansas. I I don't see it right. as backward as maybe people think. Yes, yeah, my dog again.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that's great. And it, well, and then Kansas 2020 versus Kansas in the 70s again. Yeah. Progress. Yeah. Um, and I think when uh, around the time Chris Blackwell signed you, I think he he said to you something like, "What are we going to do about the gay thing?" <laughs> right.
1: Well, it was uh, the album was just about to come out, and it was the last meeting of everyone. I remember sitting at the the room where everyone's at the table and they're like, okay, well, going to come out and you're going to tour this. You're going to do that. Well, what are we going to do about this gay thing? <laughs> I mean, and it's, it's like, well, I'm, I'm obviously gay. You signed me into gay bar. I have a girlfriend. Um, I said, well, I don't ever want to live a lie. I can't pretend I have a boyfriend or pretend I'm something I'm not. I'm just not going to do that. And they said, well that's okay as as long as you don't flag wave, whatever that meant. We didn't have the rainbow flag then, so <laughs> and then, you know, four years later I came out so and started flag waving. But they were all they very at that point they were very supportive of it. They changed with the times too.
0: You said no one actually in those intervening four years, no interviewer asked you the question, it just never never came up. <laughs>
1: I was actually thinking about this morning because I knew I was talking to Rolling Stone. Yeah. And I remember my very first Rolling Stone interview and I was always expecting someone to do their homework and find out that this bar, the K Seurat in Long Beach was a lesbian bar and maybe <laughs> they would ask me some questions about that. Uh, and he did. He said, um, he said, uh, you know, this, bar you were in was a lesbian bar I said yes and he said and you have a very large lesbian following I said yes and he said one might assume that you're a lesbian I said one might yes you know and <laughs> and I, I left it there and I this was my first album and I totally expected for him to out me and the article never came out so sure. so it was either someone on your end or It might have been my publicity company might have nixed it. I don't know that behind my back, not telling me. But so, you know, a good Rolling Stone reporter did his did his homework and the the article never came out. Huh.
0: Well, after after uh, we'll we'll do some investigating. (laughs) Yeah, find out. It was
1: 1988. There you go. How did you come to be a Bruce Springsteen fan? How does anyone come? You you hear you hear you know blinded by the light and you're like ah oh, you know that's it. Um, again, growing up in Kansas, we had a, a great radio station there called KY 102. It was a rock station, and in like seventh grade, my I was 12, 11, 12, right around there. I I had a, like I had mono. I was sick for about two weeks, three weeks, just in bed. And my parents gave me their radio alarm clock because we didn't have a TV upstairs. So I would just, so for about two weeks straight, I listened to the radio and I listened to, it was all day and all night, just listened to all this rock and roll stuff. And when they played Springsteen, I sat up and went, what is that? And then right after that, he came out with um, Born to Run. And of course, the minute you hear Born to Run, it's like, it's over. And that's when I was, starting to form my idea of what kind of artist I wanted to be. I had I had started playing in these bands a little bit. I was messing around writing my own songs. I, I, I had this this desire coming up inside of me. And I, I said, uh, that's the kind of artist I want to be. I want to write songs that make people feel the way he makes me feel. I want to sing with this authenticity. I want to perform like that. I I want, you know, people to uh, when I, when I play. And so it, it, from then on, it was what would Bruce do, you know?
0: (laughs) What always struck me about your performance of Thunder Road with him at at the Unplugged Mm. is that you were singing it in the classic way. And he at the time was in this ambivalent place. He wasn't fully rocking. He wasn't. He was a, a few <laughs> years away from reuniting with the East Street Band. And it's like you could feel you're almost dragging him into the rock version. It's a really interesting tension there.
1: I gotta tell you, he came to the the show and we rehearsed upstairs in in this uh, in a little dressing room. We rehearsed. Okay, you sing this, and I'm like, I'll, I'll just sing the because you know the the second part. I'll just sing along with you. And so. We go down for sound check and he goes, Where's your band? I said, No, dude, it's just me and you. And he goes, You and I are just gonna sing it? I said, Yeah, it's just this is unplugged. It's just me. I'm just playing. You know, and he's like, Oh, and he and he kind of was like like shaking. He hadn't done Tom Joe, he hadn't done anything yet. And his unplugged, you remember his unplugged was like, no, and he played it with yeah, the whole yeah, band. With the band. Yeah, with band, yeah. Yeah. So he he's like looks at me and goes, and he watched the whole show, my whole show, from the wings right there. He watched everything I did and then he came out and sang it with me and he'd never done that. And I, and I to me, I thought everybody, everyone just gets up and says, that's fine. But he, he really, uh, that's, I appreciate you recognizing that because him and I, just, it, it, was, it was this great. I, it's one of my favorite things I've ever done. Of course is sing with Bruce Springsteen, but just the performance. And I kept messing up on the end. If you watch it, mm. cause I was like, dude, I, cause I, I just been out, you know, out and proud for about a year. I said, I want to sing. So Mary climb in. That just really means a lot to me. Right. And wow. so, and so we'd get to the end and I would just be so, just staring at him and listening to him and the line came and I just, I, totally blew the line and missed it up, messed it up and he looked at me and i was like oh so we had to do it again and you'll see if you watch the performance at the very end i almost blow it again and i step mm-hmm. up and sing and and i sing mary climb in and the camera shot is right of, of him and he turns and he kind of laughs because i almost blew it again and it's just it was just a great uh, uh, that, just a great never, memory
0: the significance of that of you getting to sing that line that hadn't occurred to me that's spectacular that's that's so cool <laughs> I wanted to talk about, you know, just uh, go through some of uh, your your greatest hits, if you don't mind. Uh, Just, uh, you know, I'm the only one. Can you kind of recall how it came together and maybe talk about what it means to you now?
1: Well, I'm the only one. uh, I had three albums out by that time. And I was touring for the third album. And my career had sort of, I'd sold like almost a million albums each album, which is, you know, it's a gold record. It's a platinum record. It's great. And at the time, it was fine. But I really, I just wanted more. I wanted, I wanted to be played on more, a uh, broader radio audience. And I was tired of trying to, the last album, Never Enough, I'd kind of tried, I tried, there was these new things called samples, you know, that people were trying. And I kind of was trying that. And I'm like, look, I'm just going to get back to what I know what I can do, rock and roll. And I, I sort of said, look, look at, bring me some water, bring me some water for my first album. That's just an old Muddy Waters and you know, get back, you know, uh, blues guitar riff that I played on it. So I said, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to the blues rock and roll again. And so I just, just a nice shuffle. And I said, that's what I'm gonna do. And I knew what I was gonna write about. I was very, the experience that I wrote about was already there. So I knew I wanted this, uh, you know, bluesy, damn, you broke my heart, but uh, I'm going to, you know, move through this. And I remember writing it. I wrote it on the back of the tour bus in Germany, I think, you know, I was touring in Europe. And I, I was just back in the bus, just playing it and writing. And it just it when came did, pretty, pretty easily.
0: <laughs> when you hit a chorus like that, you must have known the first time you sang, it. you must have known you kind of had hit it.
1: Well, I knew, I knew I would want to sing it. I And at that point, it's like, look, as long as I love it, as long as I want to sing the song, then hopefully other people will love it. And I tell you, it's to this day, people I ah, they you know, they <laughs> sing it, they sing it karaoke. It's great. <laughs> of course. And uh, Come to My Window. Come to My Window was funny. I almost didn't put it on the album. Hmm. I, I was like, it's, I, I thought it was, a little too of a, ambiguous of a song that maybe people wouldn't quite know what I'm talking about. The chorus came first, actually. I wanted to write a chorus that had a lifting melody that kind of went up and just So come to my window. I just, I wanted that, you know, and I'll be home soon. I was like, oh, and then, and I wrote that in Europe too. I was I was in a relationship that was, you know, it's, the kind of relationship you have in your early 30s you think you're all in it but it's all complicated and and so just the I had just hung up from talking where we didn't say anything we just were like oh, you know it's just bad and I just hung up and you know and said why you know why do I do this oh well I would dial the numbers just to listen to your breath I would just you know I, I want to connect with you so badly so it was that it was that sort of angst and then the bridge that I don't care what they think. I don't care what they say. What do they know about this love anyway? It's like my excuse to be putting up with all of this, you know, with this bad relationship. It was just, this is what I want, you know? And, and, and then I put it all together, very simple. And then I was like, yeah, it's too, ah," it, it was just, it wasn't quite what I, it certainly wasn't what I thought a hit song was. And then, man, it came out and it just, it just kept going and going and going i was like oh what do i know you know <laughs>
0: <laughs> and uh you can sleep while i drive
1: oh now that I song so. that song of course i um uh, I, I it's funny i wrote that in england <laughs> so, i write a lot of songs when i'm overseas <laughs> yeah, thinking clearly of, you have
0: to leave the country to, just, to, yeah. to
1: write the best songs i think i need to go now i i so, yeah, that's, that song was, was about missing America, actually. And a trip that I took before, I, before Chris Blackwell, actually, when Chris Blackwell signed me, I was tired of everything. I said, well, I'm going to make my own tour. And I, and I booked like little coffee houses. I called it up and said, hey, for 50 bucks, can I come play? And they're like, yeah. And so I just booked this thing and for, you know had enough gas money to go from town to town. And uh-huh. so this is a memory of that that trip that we took you know staying with barbara in nashville and and uh, again i'm in a relationship that uh it wasn't monogamous which i don't uh recommend that for anyone (laughs) but um you know writing about this and writing about america And I remember starting the the first verse and writing, you know, come on, baby, let's get out of this town. I got a full tank of gas and the top rolled down. You know, um, there's a chill in my bones. I don't want to be left alone. So baby, you can sleep while I drive. Okay. Yeah. And I remember when I wrote, you can sleep while I drive. I was like, oh, that's a really nice thing. And a lot of people don't no. A lot of people are like, oh, we played that song at our wedding. They, It's a very loving thing. If you listen to it, you know, you can sleep, I'll drive. But the song is, is about the fear of losing someone, of that mm. person that, that's going to go be with someone else, you know. And at the end of the song, it's, well, if you won't take me with you, if you're going to go by yourself, if you won't take me with you, I'm going to go before the night's through and you can sleep while I drive.
0: Right.
1: <laughs> a lot of people don't catch that. But That's what it
0: is. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, there's there's people who think that With or Without You by You 2 is a love song, you know?
1: (laughs) Oh, (laughs) I know. (laughs) Once you do a song, it's up to you. You can take it however you want.
0: Now, uh, your most recent album, as I mentioned, The the Medicine Show, is, first of all, uh, really excellent. I, I think stands up with any of your work. Oh, thank you. But the the medicine show idea, the medicine in question is, if correct me if I'm wrong, is is cannabis. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, a few things. I mean, I guess you had an an experience. I think there's a lot of people who have have had (laughs) that. More and more have had that experience in recent years. Which is, you you had a a very large dose of of edibles one time. We we call it a heroic dose.
1: A heroic dose. Yes. Yes. Um, Unintentionally, my girlfriend at the time was a very good baker and unbeknownst to me she was just one of those people that if a little bit's good then a lot is good for you and so you know she took she didn't know how much cannabis to put in and she and they were delicious so I ended up eating like three cannabis cookies and of course she passed out and I was like ah and this was before cancer this was before anything and it um it really popped my head open and I think there's something in a heroic dose, whether it's cannabis or psilocybin or ayahuasca or whatever it is, that takes your left brain offline, your left brain, which is you know, scientifically we know it's in charge of the future and the past and worrying about what you got to do and it keeps you in balance of, you know, things that you got to do and standing up and moving forward and it takes that offline, and then your right brain, which is all intuition and oneness and spirit and, you know, everything that, that we really don't make much time for in our lives and all of a sudden that's, that's everything. And um, I spent, you know, it, it, it seemed like forever, but <laughs> I spent, you know, a good couple of hours really connected up with spirit, with that part of our brains, with that part of our existence, or part of our reality. And it just threw, it just totally changed my life. I, I woke up the next morning and went, wow, I'm never going to be the same. Then I was diagnosed with cancer and it really helped me walk through the cancer experience, really helped me. The experience
0: helped you or, and or cannabis helped you both? Or?
1: Uh, can't the, the experience of that sort of spirituality helped me with, you know, something where I was looking at my mortality, thinking that I might die, you know, cancer. My father died of cancer. My aunt, my grandmother, I, Oh my God, what if I die of cancer? You know, the experience of this, of this heroic dose of cannabis just put me at ease about death. It's like, Oh, we all die, We're yet this spirit that we are, you know, this physical body, yeah, this, I call it a meat suit. This meat suit goes away. But man, this thing that's my spirit that is animating this, that's keeping me upright, that never goes away. So I don't fear death. And that's, it's, it's one of the reasons that my son's passing. I'm able to know that he's still with me. He's, he's, he's just in non-physical. You know, he, he doesn't end, that spirit is still there. I you know, I wish he was here in the physical with me, yes, but I know he's there just like my father. And and I know that when this meat suit's done, I will still be here. So I don't, and once you remove that fear of death, that takes away a lot of reasons that we stop ourselves from doing things. So when I went through my cancer journey, I, I came at it with, a well, I'm not going to fear death because I'm not afraid. And then I started looking at health and Medicine, And it's one of the reasons I truly believe cannabis and plant medicine, entheogens are, are, we need them now. It's one of the, I think it's why people reach for opioids. It's a, it's the process synthetic uh, version of this pain relief. When plant medicine offers that to us, it offers a, a relief of, of our left brains that can just crush us in our problem solving consciousness, you know? And I'm a big, uh, I'm a big supporter of plant medicine, and I'm involved in the cannabis industry, and
0: yeah. Did you get that phrase, meat suit, from Cross? Because I know he's used that. From who? From David Crosby.
1: Oh, no, I didn't. I got it from uh, a journey I had, and and one of the shamans called it your oh, meat well, suit. Oh, that's,
0: remar- that's a bizarre coincidence. Yeah, no. <laughs>
1: I, I probably told him.
0: <laughs> the, right, that could be, because I never heard Crosby say it directly James Taylor told me that Cross calls it a meat suit. Uh, so there you go. Weird. Uh, that, that, yeah, he, he must he must have gotten from me. He you. might have got it from me. A- have you been able to talk to to Cross in, in all this? I know he's devastated. Yeah,
1: he's really sad and and you know, of course he he thinks that for somehow his own biology you know was part of a of the reason that Beckett was, you know, addicted to opioids, but you, you can't you, we, we all have that capacity to be addicted, you know? And um, I just he's, just, he's such a beautiful man, and he's, I mean, he really is. With all his you know, quirks and everything that, that he is, he's, he, was, he gave me an opportunity to be a parent, and I, I, I just, I'm so grateful for that. And yeah, we've, we've talked, he's just a, he's a wonderful human being. It does seem, you can imagine why he would say that, but
0: it also, when you really think about it, it's, it's, it's too reductive. Exactly. To, to imagine, that that's the case. But you are, uh, you know, like all musicians. Again, you're, you're, you're off the road and quite forcibly. How and no one knows anything. But how hopeful are you that you can be playing in front of audiences anytime
1: soon? What where does it sit in your in your mind? Well, I I've just come to the I've been, I've lived long enough to know that things change that what is will become something else. Like, like I could have never um, imagined what we're ha- what's going on now. It's funny because I always said, well, at least I can always sing for people. I can always sing for people. And then they took the people away. I'm like, oh gosh. So, you know, I'm doing it streaming now. I'm doing it online. Yet that experience of people in an audience live, sharing the experience of music, the ritual of music, we need that. That's a human experience that makes this reality palatable. It makes it I mean, there's people that that really count on getting out there and doing that. So I, I totally believe that it will it will come back because it's it's a it's a human desire to be with other humans celebrating in music. We've done that since we were, you know, in the caves, you know. And I think we'll see it probably in the European countries, they'll they'll come first because they're so far ahead of us right now. And they'll show us a way to do it, and then we'll start small. Um, are we gonna see it this year? No. Or is it gonna be the last thing that comes together? Yes, you know, so I'm hoping, I, I truly believe that by next summer, we'll be out doing shows, because I can't imagine well, I couldn't imagine this, but uh, my belief is that yes, we we will be back to doing shows in the spring, summer of 2021.
0: The sense is increasingly, yeah, that that uh, whatever happens, the U.S. won't be first. You're not the first <laughs> musician I've heard say that, and that wasn't that wasn't the way we were thinking a few months ago. But it's now becoming, and what a that's kind of uh, tragedies upon tragedies. Just you know, uh, and it it may be also personally from my observation situation that some of these countries that have gotten it so in control might be able to have shows before vaccine because there's no real community transmission. But in the U S it possibly might not be until a vaccine because we can't seem to get the community transmission down. I don't know if, if you've thought about it in this, in this degree of detail, but
1: no, I, I haven't. It, I'm, yeah. I'm ready to go move to New Zealand and play there in a couple of weeks, you know, <laughs> you know, cause it, it's sad. The lack of leadership that we had It's tragic. And, the repercussion. I mean, my crew, my band is out of work. I mean, they. Yes. lots of people are out of work and these are, you know, skilled technicians. You know, we, we've we set up a GoFundMe, at, uh, you know, for my crew. The fans have set it up and we're trying to, you know, get them some, some funds, but it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's really tragic. And I hope, I do hope that new leadership will help us get things going in 2021
0: absolutely <laughs> well i think this has been great but melissa thank you so much for doing this again it is it was great to see you and, and again you know every condolence i can give thank you um, but and looking forward to uh, your, your many performances that, that we're going to be getting
1: five nights a week here three o'clock uh, pacific time six o'clock eastern time right here playing music talking. On Fridays, I show old videos of performances of me back in 1988, no one's ever seen. (laughs) So we're having a really good time. Etheridge TV. And, um, you know, thank you. I, I look forward to having interviews in person again. That would be nice.
0: Me too. Thanks again. Stay safe.
1: You too. Thank you so
0: much. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much to Melissa Etheridge. We'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's volume, channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download Rolling Stone Music Now as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can. I tend to read them. But as always, thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we will see you next week.